Well, welcome to the teaching portion of our service. I'm so glad that you're joining us from wherever you are. Uh, We're continuing in our series, Come and See, looking at the Gospel of John. And today we're in John chapter 6, and we're going to be talking about cancel culture a little bit. Maybe you've heard this phrase bounce around. It's been growing in popularity, but what is it? What is cancel culture? Uh, So to get us on the same page, I googled a definition. So let's just look at this right here. Cancel culture is when followers withdraw their support from a public figure after they have done or said something they consider offensive. So let me give you an example. The first time I heard about cancel culture was coming out of this story uh, in 2014. This uh, woman, Justine Sacco, she, um, she had about 170 or so Twitter followers, it, kind of in the early-ish days of Twitter. And uh, she was flying to uh, South Africa from New York, where her family was. And she was kind of putting these tweets together, kind of sarcastic, a little bit mean about the people around her in the plane. Uh, And then, you know, right when the captain was about to say, okay, it's time to turn off your phone, she sent one last tweet that went too far. It was overtly racist. I'm not gonna say what she said here, but definitely not in good taste. And she hit send, turned off her phone, put it down, and fell asleep. 11 hours later, she woke up uh, in South Africa, and she turned on her phone, and immediately she got a call from her best friend, Hannah, who said, Justine, you are the number one, uh, like, most retweeted tweet, tweeter <laughs> on Twitter right now. That's a mouthful. <laughs> and, but, but not in a good way like it was a horror show. Her joke had gone viral uh, and there was a mob of tens of thousands of people uh, calling her out for her, her bad racist joke. And within days, she had lost her job, she was scorned by her family and uh, her whole presence on the internet was just completely erased. She was canceled. Now, uh, it would be a mistake to think that this is a new problem. In fact, Twitter and other social media platforms uh, have only magnified what was already there because the truth is we've always canceled people who offend us. We've always done that. You may have uh, experienced this. Maybe you've unsubscribed from a particular email list. Maybe you've uh, unfollowed a certain friend on social media. Maybe you've blocked a certain phone number or maybe you have boycotted a certain company, or maybe you've even switched a certain from one church to another church. See, we can also cancel Jesus. And, you know, we follow him, uh, those of us who claim to follow him, we we all follow him and everything's hunky-dory until he says or does something that we find offensive. And then what? And we all have to learn to deal with this because at some point, you guys, Jesus is going to offend us. It's truth. It's a truth that we have to grapple with. And John 6 helps us do that. Because we've been hearing about these offensive things that Jesus has been doing and saying, things that are, were making people, quote, grumble or, quote, argue sharply. And this all started 
when Jesus was teaching this crowd. We've been talking about this for uh, like two weeks now and you can go back and hear exactly what happened uh, in our, our series archives. So he's teaching this crowd on the hillside and he fed them miraculously, 5,000 men and their families and households out of a few loaves of fish and bread. I mean, this incredibly, really insane miracle that he did. And the Jesus movement was really picking up steam. People were gathering to him, flocking to him. Everyone was excited. So excited, in fact, that the crowd seized him and they were going to make him king by force. They were like, let's get this guy an army. Uh, let's get him in government. And, you know, maybe he can finally stand up to the Herodian oppression. Uh, Herod, uh, Herod, their king, maybe he can finally be a counterbalance to Herod and his corruption and his taxation. Maybe he can finally put a dent in Roman oppression and the way Roman soldiers could just walk in and seize their property and, and put their children uh, to work. They, they wanted to make him their political mascot and he said no. So he offended them politically. And then later, uh, he like got away from them and the crowd followed him and they wanted more food. And he, they, they didn't get what they wanted. You know, he didn't give them the food that they thought they needed. And, and this is really important because when you think about first century Jewish life, these weren't like well-fed suburbanites. These were people who, many of them living, were living hand to mouth. They're day laborers and their kids were hungry. Like, not like I want a snack hungry, like actually calorie deprived hungry. And he could have fed them, but he didn't. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. He offended them in their politics. He offended them in their suffering. And then he started preaching this sermon and he told them that he was greater than their greatest religious hero, Moses. And that Moses wasn't the provider of the real bread from heaven that he was. So not only did he offend them politically uh, in their suffering, he also offended their religious traditions. And if that wasn't enough, he told them that he himself was the true Passover sacrifice, this image of this lamb being slaughtered. And he, he put a word picture in their mind that if you think about it is grotesque. It's uh, of them eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And they're like, is this literal? Is this symbolic? What do, we, what do we do with this? Like Jesus, nothing you're saying is just clear and simple and it's all requiring us to do more and more work to try to understand you. And by the way, what's all this fixation with death and sacrifice? In other words, Jesus was offending them in their politics, in their suffering, in their religious traditions and with his death. What do you do when Jesus offends you? That's the question we're asking today. And we're gonna see that in their response, in this conversation he has with his disciples, that he's gonna ask them three questions in the tension of their offense at what he's done and said. Now, I don't know if you caught it, like last week when Mark was teaching um, he pointed out this little verse and it's this great little detail and it sets up the conversation in John 6 verse 59. He said, he said this, he preached this sermon uh, while teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum. Okay, so now we're gonna get dropped into this after sermon conversation. It's like this coffee hour that you have experienced maybe in church. You know, when the sermon's over, everyone's kind of 
milling around in the lobby, got that paper cup of coffee in their hands. And usually people are walking up to the preacher and they're like, hey, great message, pastor. You know, even if they don't really mean it, they're just being polite. But great, great message. And, and like here outside of the synagogue, uh, no one is saying anything to Jesus. They're just kind of standing there looking at the gravel. One disciple's like scratching the gravel with his sandal. And finally, someone speaks up. In verse 60, we read, a disciple says, on hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Hard, not hard to understand, but hard to accept. Like, Jesus, you really went too far. This was like your worst sermon ever. Verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? It's the first question and we'll come back to that later. Then what if you see the son of man ascend to where he was before? So in other words, Jesus is saying, oh, you're stunned by what I just told you about my sacrifice and my death? Well, I'm gonna blow your mind when I come back from the dead and ascend to my father. Verse 63, the spirit gives life The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. So flesh here is the same word that he used earlier in chapter six when he said, my flesh is true food. In other words, he's he's saying the flesh counts as nothing. Like in other words, guys, relax. I wasn't talking about literally eating my bones and my sinew and my muscle. I was was talking, I was giving you a word picture to, to help you like understand that what I'm about is dying in order to unlock new life and vitality for you, okay? So there's a metaphor, so relax. Verse 64, yet some of you, uh, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Now this is surprising because who is Jesus talking to? I mean, he's talking to his guys, his, his groupies, his people, He's talking to his disciples and what does he say? He's like, some of you don't believe in me. Not only that, but some of you have it out for me. You're you're already planning and plotting in your mind how you're gonna cancel me. And I'm gonna tell you a secret, so lean in. Not everyone who goes to church is fully on board with Jesus, okay? So that was just a little pastor freebie. Verse 65, Jesus went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. So when Jesus is talking about coming to him, he's not talking about coming to him like a fan goes to a concert or maybe watches one online these days. He's talking about an ongoing posture of dependence and trust, which has been enabled by the trustworthiness of the Father. So let's go back to that first question. He he asked his disciples, does this offend you? Does this offend you? And this is a question we need to ask. Uh, You know, we need to ask it when we think about the things that Jesus does and he says, like his truth ethic. Does his truth ethic offend you? When Jesus says, like in John 14, six, no one comes to the Father but through me, what Jesus is saying is I'm not just one legitimate path to religious fulfillment. I am actually the only way to experience the one true God. 
In, in, in a world that preaches a gospel of tolerance, does his truth ethic offend you? What about his response to your suffering? Does that offend you? Like Jesus earlier, he let people go hungry. He let children go hungry. I mean, just let that sink in for a minute. Put yourself in parents' shoes or sandals. Jesus could have fed their children, but he didn't. And you walk away going, what's the deal, Jesus? And, and there are pains in the world and maybe in your world that Jesus can heal, but maybe for some reason, for some people, he just doesn't. Does that offend you? What about his sex ethic? Does that offend you? In a world that says, my body, my choice, in a world that preaches the gospel of self-actualization through cohabitation, through divorce, through hookup culture and pornography and gender identity and sexual orientation, reinventing all of that and tearing down all of the, the categories that we have for that, how does Jesus' teaching settle with you? When he says, in Matthew 19, verse 5, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Does that offend you? See, it's, it's okay to be offended. In fact, I would say if you're not being offended by Jesus on some point, you're not really following him. We're not offended because because most of us, I think, we're, because we're hard, skeptical people. See, we're, we're most deeply offended where we're most vulnerable. And your difficulty, the, the area of offense for you might be different than mine. And we should expect that. Like maybe, maybe for you, it's his people. Maybe it's Jesus' people that are offensive to you. And Jesus said, you know, there are people who claim to follow me but they don't actually trust me. And think about that for a minute. When I talk to people, one of the main reasons they cancel Jesus is because people who call themselves Christians often don't act very much like Christ. I was reading uh, in Matthew 5 um, with some friends who kind of are together wrestling through just issues of uh, racial reconciliation and, and uh, they were talking about some of the backlash they'd gotten when they were voicing some of their real life painful experiences uh, because of the color of their skin. And we were reading um, in Matthew 5, uh, right around verse 40, uh, 39, where Jesus said, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And one of my friends, who is a person of color, just said, Man, this is hard. This is a hard teaching, Jesus. When Jesus asked, does this offend you? We have to name our difficulty. We've got to name it. The disciples said, Jesus, this is a hard teaching. Jesus, your teaching scares me. Your teaching makes me angry. Your, your teaching makes me feel protective of my friend who I love that this affects. And apprenticing under Jesus is learning to name your difficulty. I mean, I mean can you say, have you said, Jesus, this is hard. This is a hard teaching. Because if you don't name your difficulty, you have really three alternatives. You can either ignore his teaching, 
by listening only to the things that you already agree with. You can reinterpret Jesus by Googling, you know, Googling yourself into a black hole until you find someone who wrote a book somewhere that reframes things in a certain way that doesn't force you to rethink your position. Or you can do what a bunch of his disciples did and you can cancel him by leaving him. Verse 66, that's what we see happen. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. I mean, picture that. You know, you're outside the synagogue with Jesus, kind of all staring at the gravel, and you're just watching families walk by without even looking up at Jesus, kind of shooing their kids along to hurry and and get out of there. They're so offended, so angry, so let down by Jesus. And it says that it's from this time. So this wasn't a once and done thing that from the beginning of the Jesus movement until 2020, there's been so much growth in the church in, in what we call, or what I call at least the Jesus movement as it spread across the planet. But there's also been this continual exodus from Jesus. It's been happening for thousands of years and it's gonna keep happening. And to be a Christian What this means is to be a Christian is to be a people of the canceled Savior. Sometimes following Jesus feels a lot like losing an election. And I just love how Jesus is so present with his closest followers, his 12 disciples, in this moment, right in the middle of this tension that they're feeling So he asks the second question, and the question is, you do not want to leave too, do you? You know, he asks, what about you? You know, people all around you are canceling Jesus, and he wants to take that moment in that tension where you're feeling that, and he wants to to step into your tension with you and go, what about you? Maybe you've had a childhood friend who's grown up following Jesus and then they kind of wake up one day and realize they no longer believe in this Jesus that, like they thought they did. Or maybe you have a son or daughter that you raised in church and they're out of the house and they're doing their own thing. Jesus wants to ask, what about you? Uh, if, you're, you know, if you've been following um, the news uh, in the past couple months, you may have heard of John Steingard. He was the lead singer for this Christian rock band, Hawk Nelson. This Christian rock band that used to be at crusades, calling people, usually students, to faith in Christ. And he just came out, John Steingard, as, as um, denying Jesus. Like, I, he just says, I don't believe in this God I th- like I thought I did. He described it like pulling on the thread of a sweater and pulling and pulling until it became like a vest, and then pulling and pulling some more until eventually the sweater was gone. When Jesus asks, do you want to leave too? We have to check our inventory. We have to check our inventory. See, this question forces us to inventory our relationship with Jesus. It forces us to ask, why am I following Jesus? Like, really, why am I following him? I say check your inventory, and here's what I mean. Um, Every relationship has an inventory. Every relationship has those things that you give to one another that keep you together for the long haul. 
It's something that you just know that they'll have for you every time you go to them. Like uh, my friend, my wife, um, who is also my friend, she always laughs at my jokes, even when no one else does. Sometimes she doesn't laugh at them, but she, I can usually count on her. Like I like puns and we have this, you know, we have family chats on our phones and, and uh, I'll, I'll just throw in puns all the time. And she's always the first one to put a little ha-ha on that. And sometimes she's the only one, if I'm honest. And, and so there's, there's more than that, you know, but that's one of the things that she has in our inventory. And I just know I can keep going back to her for that thing. And, but more than that, we've, you know, as in our marriage and as in our friendship, uh, I've felt her care for me when I've been at, just at my most vulnerable points. And guys, when something difficult comes up in a relationship, you need to go back and you need to check your inventory. Why am I in this relationship now? And, and why would I want to be in this relationship in the future? And apprenticing with Jesus is learning to constantly check your relational inventory with him. Because there are going to be times where he says difficult things things that require us to trust him and we need to know what his what our relationship with him is doing in our lives so so peter checks his inventory look in verse 68 with me simon peter he's the external processor of the group i can relate always the first to speak the last to realize what he's saying was pr- pretty good here what he says he says lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter is quoting scripture that he memorized back in Sunday school. Uh, scriptures like Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Or Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. When your words came to me, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. You know, heaven speaks. Heaven speaks. Heaven has a language. It's, it's the language of God. It's the language that's spoken in the Trinitarian community of love that's been spoken since before time began. It's the language that spoke the universe into being. And it's the, the language that can describe uh, the multidimensional glory of God. And one of the sad realities of our separation from God because of our sin and our rejection of him is that we can no longer understand the language of heaven without a translator. So how does God, infinitely beautiful, infinitely wise, speak heaven's language in a way we can understand? How does he do that? He does it through Jesus. He does it by becoming one of us and giving us heaven's words in our language. Jesus is heaven speaking to you. And eternal life or life in heaven becomes a reality here and now when our souls can learn to feast on Jesus' words. And then Jesus asks us the last question. He said, have I not chosen you? The twelve so everyone else goes away and he's just with his, his closest inner circle. Have I not chosen you, the 12, yet one of you is a devil. 
He was talking about Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the 12, was later to betray him. So he asks this question, have I not chosen you? Who's, who's in this group that he's talking to again? Uh, Judas, who he calls diabolos, which literally means slanderer, which is someone who twists the truth in order to, to uh, make themselves come out better. And that's exactly what Judas did. He was following Jesus around, part of his movement, but he was beginning to realize that he was following a Messiah who was being canceled. It was too much for him. And later on, we're going to read this as we continue in John, Judas would eventually decide to cash in on Jesus and betray him. How are you doing? You know, at this point, a lot of us, especially those of us who've been in the church for a while, are tempted to think, man, how could someone ever do that? I hope I would never do that. So you, you may be thinking the way Peter's thinking right now. Jesus, I get you. I know who you are. I know where to go. I'm, I'm with you to the end. And just like Peter, you mean it from the bottom of your heart. But just like Peter, when the heat gets turned up, when the stakes are high, when the mob comes after Jesus, we will deny him. Just like Peter did. We're going to cover that story uh, a a number of weeks from now in John chapter 18. But right now, what what we have to do is is once we can name our difficulty and once once we can uh, check our inventory, we have to own our culpability. We have to own our responsibility that that actually in in that moment when the stakes are high, that, that we have and we will cancel Jesus And then we have to realize that it's right in that moment where Jesus is looking at you, fully aware of your fears and your vulnerabilities and your difficulties, fully aware uh, of your offense, that he asks you, have I not chosen you? Right in that moment. It's not a surprise to Jesus that we cancel him. It's not a surprise that when the mob comes that we all abandon him. It's not a surprise that Jesus' disciples do what we would do, that, that we would we'd let him be canceled on a cross. But in the, in the middle of your difficulty and your doubts and your fears, he chooses you. See, Jesus offends us, but he's not offended by us. His love is unoffendable. And the cross is proof that Jesus will never cancel you. So what do we do with this? Uh, I kind of had this scenario in my mind. I'm going to try to describe it to you. It's just, so imagine um, it's nighttime, it's dark, and, but right in front of you is a burning house. And you can see the flames breaking through the, the first story windows. You can smell the furniture and the drywall and the wood inside turning into smoke. You can hear the creaking of the house and you know it's just a matter of time before it's, it's all gone and, and ash. As you're staring at the house, you look up at the second story window and there's a little girl. She's screaming with terror, screaming for her daddy. And then you look to your side 
And there's a man, her father, standing there saying, come to me, jump, I will catch you. What is it for that girl that would cause her to leave the perceived safety of that window? What is it? It's, it's trust that her father would catch her, that she can obey her father, that, that when he says, come to me, that he has the best in store for her and that he would do anything to make sure that she doesn't get hurt. And there's only one thing that we're asked to do here to apply what we've been learning and it's Jesus' invitation, come to me. Come to me. And this isn't coming to him as a fan or as a cynic or as kind of a passive, objective, academic observer. Jesus says, come to me like a child who trusts him unconditionally. See, Jesus wants him to trust him unconditionally. That's a lot to ask, isn't it? Well, he asks it of everybody. There's not a single person on either side of the political aisle, doesn't matter your color of skin, doesn't matter what gender you are or what gender you're attracted to. There's not a single person that Jesus isn't inviting to let go of the thing that you think is keeping you alive in order to discover real life in him. But unconditional trust is scary. It's difficult. It's hard. The only thing that deserves unconditional trust is unconditional love. And it's the unoffendable, unconditional love that the Father is giving to us in Jesus. And in the cross, that's how the Father enables us to trust Jesus unconditionally. Could it be, could it be that the very thing that you think would kill you is actually the thing that is holding you back from really living? And I just, I want to say, encourage you. I think there's nothing that's scary or offensive that Jesus calls us to that isn't actually for our greater joy. And, And with Jesus, every willing step of trusting obedience ends not with less freedom, but with more freedom. And Jesus said, man, you think, you think this death, you think this sacrifice is offensive, wait till you see eternal life. Wait till you see the Son of Man in his glory. Wait till you're with him in that place. Because with Jesus, death is not the end, it's just a beginning. With Jesus, the cross ends with a resurrection. With Jesus, your cross will end with a resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, you, you invite the little children to come to you. You say, don't, don't hinder them. The kingdom of God is for them. Eternal life is for them. So Jesus, we, we just sit at your feet trying to absorb the, the cosmic weight of heaven's language through you. We ask that you would enable us to trust you completely. And Lord, for those of us who are just hanging by a thread and we're ready to walk away, um, pray that you would give us grace. 
pray that you would give us the gift of a listening ear. Lord, uh, we're humbled. We're humbled by you and we love you. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.